Thanks for joining us today for the Eagle Drive Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Chris Thorne. Eagle Drive is a Bible-believing New Testament Baptist church where Jesus is preeminent and the gospel of grace is at center stage. We are devoted to connecting with God, growing together, serving others, and sharing our faith. If you would like to know more about our ministry, visit eagledrivebaptist.com. Now, here's today's message. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11 this morning. And uh, once you find your place, go ahead and stand if you could as we read God's Word this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we come to uh, the conclusion these last two chapters. We're finally wrapping things up. Uh, so it's going to take us a few weeks to kind of wrap everything up. And what Solomon does is in, the, in these last two chapters is he, in a sense, kind of shows us uh, some different pictures of life. It's as if he's uh, piecing uh, different puzzle pieces together to kind of make that final picture of what life is all about. So uh, let's go ahead and read. Follow along in your Bibles if you would, or it's up there on the screens if you don't have a Bible. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, starting in verse number 1. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree fall toward the south or toward the north in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of, of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. In the morning sow thy seed. And in the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not whether thou shalt prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we start to wrap up uh, the conclusion of all of this, of what Solomon has been teaching us, uh, really, as we've studied the past several months, Lord. God, I pray that you'd help us to learn some very important truths from your word as we piece all of these final puzzle pieces together to, to find the significance, the true meaning of life. And it's a little contrary to what our world would suggest, but uh, in Solomon's wisdom, he paints a very important picture for us. So God, I pray that you'd help us to see this picture, to see these truths this morning. We love you so much. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated today. I want to go ahead and jump right into it this morning. Uh, we're going to get back to some of the notes that are early on in your study. But the very first thing that we see in these six verses is this principle. Uh, guys, can we turn the air on? I think the heat got turned on instead of the air. Uh, can, yeah, it's all right. Uh, we can just turn the air on. Mike, just don't, don't mind just doing that. At least it feels like it up to me. Anybody else feel like the heat's on? Yeah, exactly. I see some people fanning themselves right now. So uh, let's just get the heat on. Uh, the very first thing that we see in these six verses, or not the heat, the air, sorry. The very first thing we see in these six verses is this. Life is an adventure. Life is an adventure. How many have ever taken an adventure? Anybody? Uh, how many like adventures? You know, when I was thinking about this, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in just a few minutes, uh, I couldn't help but think of that Disney movie, Up. Uh, it's one of my wife's favorite um, uh, little kid movies, and uh, it's, got a, it's got a great storyline behind it. And you think about it, um, it's, it's very sad at the beginning, but it's got a great story as well. Um, Carl and Ellie, they get together, they meet one another, and, and their goal in life is to take this grand and glorious adventure to Paradise Falls in South America. And they're saving up all their pennies, all their money along the way, and they're trying to, uh, to go there. But along the way, life happens. Has that ever happened to you? You're saving up for something, life happens. Uh, 
the air-conditioned brakes, the car brakes, uh, something happens, you have hospital bills or a kid breaks their leg or whatever it is. So different uh, circumstances happen along the way in their life and they, it showed they kept having to break the piggy bank and pay for certain things along the way. Finally, uh, uh, sadly, Carl's wife, Ellie, passes away. She dies, and it's still his desire to, to go to Paradise Falls, South America. That's what he's always wanted to do. They always wanted to go together, and they had created this adventure book together. And in the adventure book early on, it was a picture of Paradise Falls, and the goal was to get there. So he finally, in his late ages of his life, he finally takes this journey and kind of an impossible journey because he attaches a bunch of balloons to his house. The house lifts up and, you know, floats along the way to South America. That'd be cool if we can do that, right? Just attach a bunch of balloons to our house and we just float away in life. So he gets there and along the way he has a little kid, Doug, that, that is on, on the journey. I'm not going to spend the whole service talking about this movie. But, but just setting the stage. And, and anyway, uh, as he gets there, uh, encounters some problems, and his hero, this adventure, is not who he thought it was. But lo and behold, he went back and looked at that adventure book that his wife and he had made. And as he flipped the page beyond adventure and uh, Paradise Falls, he realized that his wife had already started journaling some of their adventures. And she had journaling just their life together. And the point I'm trying to make is that I think Ellie realized that, yes, that would be an awesome thing to do, but life itself is an adventure. It's an adventure sharing with one another along the way. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas as to what adventure might be. And in the first really 10 chapters, or really the first several chapters of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been on a journey of life, right? He's been searching for significance, searching for meaning and satisfaction, and he's ask a question in a sense, and the question he asked was this, is life worth living? You know what his answer was? No. All right, that's the message today. You can go home. In his search for satisfaction under the sun, he determined that life wasn't worth living because everything that he was trying to chase after led to non-satisfaction led to non-joy, non-significance. Everything that the world says you need, it didn't bring him happiness. So in his search for significance, in his search for meaning, he realized that under the sun, apart from God, life isn't really worth living. But as he closes the book, and as he's turned this corner over the last several chapters, he shows us that life truly is worth living when lived in the right perspective, when lived under the realization that God is in control of life. And if we follow God's plan for our life, life is so much better. But some of the conclusions that he made along the journey were this, and it's the first part of your notes, that life is monotonous. So since life is so monotonous and it's repetitive, it just, it's vicious cycles that you know, something happens and another thing happens. You know, one of the things that we talked about was, you know, people are born and then what happens? You die. That's one of the vicious cycles of life. And there were all, all other things that he talked about in those first three chapters. So that conclusion led him to believe that under the sun, life isn't worth living. Another conclusion that he came to was the vanity of wisdom. He's not saying that wisdom isn't important, but a lot of people today chase after wisdom, chase after knowledge, and think, if I have a higher education, it's going to bring me more satisfaction. But sometimes, more wisdom, more knowledge just brings you more trouble. 
He also talked about the futility of wealth. In our day and age, in our culture, people think that if I have more money, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to have everything that I need. Now, you can have everything you need, and you still don't be happy. We know that to be true. We look at Hollywood. We look at celebrities uh, in our day and age. We look at um, uh, sports stars, and they have a lot of money. They have a lot of things. Uh, but the sad thing is, a lot of them, they just spend all their wealth, and then they're broke. <laughs> they have a lot of debt, so they're not necessarily happy. They're not necessarily, necessarily satisfied with life. A fourth conclusion he makes is that death is certain. So as you look at those four conclusions, it, it sounds like a great book to read. But again, he finally starts to bring God into the equation. And as he realized that life truly is an adventure, he realizes a very important principle that we see throughout the pages of Scripture. And it's the fact that since life is an adventure, listen to me, we need to live it by faith. It's very important to live life by faith. Not everyone in here has faith in something. It's a trust, and it's a belief in something. But a lot of people, sadly, don't have a true faith, a true reliance, a true dependence on God. Because as we talked about before and discussed, we are trying to control things that are not ours to control. Faith, in a sense, is trusting someone else that they know what they're doing. In a sense, it's, it's a simple illustration of a pen. You trust that Whoever created this pen knew what they were doing, and this pen is actually going to work. The master, the designer, the creator of that pen knew what they were doing. And, and faith, in a sense, in God is trusting that the master of it all, the creator of all, the designer of it all, God knew and knows what he is doing. Now, faith in God, I want you to understand this, is very imperative. But faith in God requires many things, and one of the things that it includes is trust and obedience. And another thing that it includes is risk. Anybody like to take risk? All right, like two people. Very good. Most of us don't like to take risk. And a lot of times as we grow older in our life, as we become adults, some of those risks become few and far between, right? We become very calculated in our risk. If it doesn't necessarily give a huge return to us, we're not going to do it. I came across an article several years ago and it's very important to kind of set the stage here this morning. It's four ways that children do faith better than the adults. I'm not going to read everything, but I want to get the bullet points this morning. The first thing that they do to uh, have faith better than adults is this. They ask questions. Don't you love it when your kids ask questions? I don't know why you guys are laughing. Uh, we all know that our kids love to ask questions. Now, sometimes, as, as a parent myself, I grow weary of the questions, Sometimes I ask questions to my wife, and she grows weary of my questions. But you think about it. Kids are very inquisitive, are they not? They want to know what's going on because they don't have the answers to all of life, so they ask us questions. And sometimes in their questions, it, it can get, ugh, it just drives us crazy. But you think about it. They're not afraid to ask the most difficult and even messy of questions. And too often, we mistake, listen to this, spiritual maturity for certainty. And what happens is we lose our thirst for discovery. Kids remind us how to approach God truthfully, inquisitively, and tirelessly. So one way kids do faith better than adults is they ask questions. Another thing they said in the article is this. They are honest. Don't you love your kids just that brutal honesty? You know, I, I've referenced this before uh, in messages. You know, sometimes it's very embarrassing 
the fact that your kids are brutally honest, right? Uh, there's been times, you know, my wife and I have been out, or my wife or myself, and, you know, Nate, especially Nate, not, not so much Noah, but I'm sure he'll get there. You know, Nate is just brutally honest. He sees something or he sees someone, and he makes a statement. Now, the statement that he makes about this person is true, but it's probably not a statement you should make in public out loud, right? Hey, mom, that person is fat. Okay, that might be true, but that's not what you should say, kid. And then it embarrasses you, especially when they're like two feet away from you in the line, or, hey, that person has no hair. They're bald. You know, whatever it is, kids say things like that. They're, they're brutally honest. Children hold nothing back. They don't like to put on a facade or pretend that everything goes okay when it's not, but don't we do that as adults? We put on this facade, we put on this mask that everything is fine when truly it's not. Kids are very vulnerable. They're open. They're awkwardly transparent. And I like what the author says. They say, adults are experts at hiding their genuine selves, experts at putting on fake smiles and keeping up appearances. Within Christianity, few are able to review their, or reveal their true identity, bravely admit themselves and their deepest fears, declare their opinions, and openly confess their sins, or simply be themselves as sincerely as children. A third thing that kids do better than adults is they ask questions, they're honest, but this is that they're passionate and excited. And I think about that. Uh, Nate and Noah, they have a passion and excitement for life. And two, or sadly, it starts at like five in the morning when I'm trying to sleep. And they're, they're in the room, they're arguing, and they're, they're wanting to get up, and they're wanting to just play, and I'm wanting to still sleep for another hour or two uh, because I didn't go to bed until late. But they're passionate, they're excited. Children marvel at the magnificence of mystery, and, and they wonder even of, of God, and, and they're excited to learn about Jesus. You think about this. You know, a lot of times our kids, they, they want to come to church more than the adults want to come to church because they want to learn about God, they want to learn about Jesus, and, and they're so excited about that. The parents just want to go sit and leave, not talk to anybody. Kids desperately want to know God. They believe in being unquenchably and explosively enthusiastic about Jesus should not be a spiritual practice exclusively reserved for kids. Unfortunately, listen, as adults get older, they tend to lose their sense of curiosity, wonder, and fascination with God. Faith can slowly dissolve into something mundane, boring, and normal. Our awe can become tainted by cynicism and bitterness. And I've seen that in my own life. Uh, when I was younger, I, I, I guess, identified myself as an eternal optimist. And a lot of times kids are those eternal optimists. They're always looking for the good in things. And I'm, I'm still optimistic in a lot of things in life, but I've realized as I get older, sometimes I turn to what I might call as realist or pessimistic. Anyone with me? And you think about that. Well, you just got to be real in life. You, it's, it's just it's how life works. But you think about the all the excitement, the energy that kids have. That's not a bad thing. But in our maturing, as we define it, we lose our passion. We lose our excitement for life and really our excitement for the things of God. And then the fourth thing that, that they said is this. Kids are adventurous. <laughs> Now we're like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember there were times in my life where I did adventurous things. But you think about it, kids bravely go where no one else will go. They'll attempt things that nobody else would attempt. They're experts at making nearly anything breakable, anything dangerous, and anything hazardous. I am still very good at that, by the way. 
Everything, though, is new and exciting to them. They venture to places they're not supposed to. They talk to people they're not supposed to talk to. They do everything they're not supposed to do. They take wild risk, and adults are the exact opposite. They're very logical, very safe, very calculated, and flat-out boring sometimes. We rarely go beyond our comfort zones. Thus, we turn, listen, Christianity into a religion of safety, a form of escapism. We become trapped by careers and comforts and commitments and responsibilities and rational excuses. We all have an excuse for why we don't do things. We all have an excuse for why we don't fully obey God and why we don't step out in faith. Following Jesus really was never meant to be safe, though. And it's definitely not logical. Christianity is a perilous journey filled with all sorts of treacherous adventure. And children understand this better than anyone, but sadly, we mistakenly see these spiritual attributes as something to grow out of instead of to grow into. We should treasure these childlike traits and seek to foster them even in our adulthood. And you got to think about that. Kids, they ask questions, they're honest, they're passionate, they're excited, they're adventurous. And really, this last point talks about risk. They're willing to take risk. But you think about in our adult life, how many of us are truly willing to just take risk? Now, in understanding faith and living a life by faith, we need to understand there are two very important principles of faith. There is a faith that is inactive. And what I mean by this is there is a time for us to wait, to be patient, to sit still. I, I can't help but think of the story in Exodus when the children of Israel were about to uh, cross the Red Sea and, and they came to the Red Sea and they're really uh, between a rock and a hard place because in front of them lies the Red Sea and if they go forward, they're going to drown. If they go behind them, the Egyptians are coming, they're pursuing them, the enemy is there, they're going to die. There, there's, it's a no-win situation. And Moses, the leader of the Israelites at the time, what does he say to them? He says, hey, stand still. I want you to wait. I want you to be patient. Because in standing still and waiting and being patient, you're going to see what God is going to do. So I refer to that as an inactive faith. And what I mean is that there is a time for us to be patient. But the more I study God's word, the more I realize that being patient, being patient is good. It's important. Don't misunderstand me. But when you study God's word and study faith, faith is also active, is it not? which means it's willing to move forward. But I've looked at my own life, and sadly I've seen that too often I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to wait. God has to just clearly show me before I do anything. And I've realized in my inactivity, in my patience, hey, I'm following God. God says to be patient and wait on him, and that's important. But in my inactiveness, I become complacent. I'm not doing what God has called me to do. The flip side of that is going forward in our faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It says in verse number six that without faith it is impossible to please God. And our faith must be active. It must go forward. It includes taking risks because you think about Abraham. When God told him to go on this journey in life, the Bible says Abraham went out, what? Not knowing where he was going. That's a huge risk, right? God says, hey, I want you to go. Okay, where am I going? I'll tell you later. 
I mean, honestly, how many of us would probably do that? Someone says, hey, I got a job for you today. I want you to start driving. Well, where am I going? I'll tell you later. I'm not going to drive there. I'm not going to just start driving. What if I run out of gas? What if, what if I meet trouble along the way? Just start driving. We're, we're not going to do that because we have to know all the details, right? We have to calculate everything. But there must be a side of risk in our, in our faith. And, and, I, and I love sports. And you think about sports, there's risk involved in sports. Uh, Wayne Gretzky has famously uh, said, um, one of the greatest hockey players of all time, but he said, uh, you miss 100% of the shots that you never take. It's true, right? <laughs> and you think about that. There are people that are very content with not doing anything. Well, if I take a shot, I might miss. I looked at what Google said to take a risk meant, and Google's definition was this, to do something that may result in loss or failure. And that's honestly why many of us don't take a risk, because we may lose something. We may fail at it. Nobody likes to fail at it. Um, my son Nate is, is a good definition of not being afraid to fail. He started basketball yesterday and, you know, made me that proud dad because he just kept shooting. Didn't matter if he missed one or two or five, he just kept shooting. Now, we have to work on the ball hog tendency because he wouldn't pass the ball, and he, he kept shooting and shooting and shooting, and uh, his team lost like 30 to 12. He's in a four- and five-year-old division, but he scored 10 points, <laughs> which is awesome. I'm, I'm proud of him as a dad, but we also have to work on some other things. Hey, you got to be a team t- teammate and pass the ball and, and not just take all the shots yourself, but uh, I was excited in the sense that he's not afraid. He's not afraid to shoot knowing that he might miss And that's what it needs to be in our life. And Hudson Taylor, a very famous missionary to China, he once said, listen to this, and I'm going somewhere with all this. Unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. You see, as Christians, it is very important for us to realize that faith in God requires risk. It requires us doing things that we don't know the answer, that we don't know the outcome. And as Solomon is closing it all together, as he's giving us these final three or four pictures of what life is really about, the very first thing he says in verses one and two is this, take a risk, take a risk, be willing to take a risk. Look at verse number one. He says, cast thy bread upon the waters for thou shalt find it after many days. Now, when you read this immediately, you're thinking, okay, If I cast bread upon the water, what's going to happen if I throw bread in water? It's going to get soggy. Anyone like soggy bread? Probably not, right? I love bread, but I do not like soggy bread. When I think of soggy bread, I think of those people that do the hot dog eating contest. You know, they dip their their hot dogs and stuff like that. The reason they do it is because it's it's easily dissolvable and easier to digest. But, you know, I love bread. I love going to Olive Garden and eating all the breadsticks. I love going to Texas Roadhouse. I'm just trying to make you uh, hungry right now. I love going to Texas Roadhouse and all that kind of stuff. But when I go to those places, I do not dip my bread in water. I have no desire for my bread to be soggy. That disgusts me when it's all soggy. So immediately, that's kind of what I think of when Solomon said, hey, cast thy bread upon the water. But then he says, for thou shalt find it after many days. Now, if I'm going to throw some bread on the water, typically it's, you know, to to feed some birds, to feed some ducks. And a lot of times it's going to be taken. It's going to be eaten. But imagine you throw some bread on the water and then a couple days later you find it. Anybody want to eat it? Nobody. Not even in teen. Oh, we got one. All right, Dylan. Very good. We got one brave teenager. Brother Mike, let's do that in a teen activity one time. And all right, he's, he's all for it. We'll make sure it happens, all right? Uh, most people 
aren't going to do that. Teenagers, they're willing to take risks. And that, yeah, that's fine. That's, that's a good thing. We're not going to do that. But that's not necessarily what Solomon is saying here. I want you to listen. In the ancient world, commerce and travel were quite different than they are today. One of the common practices was to load uh, seafaring vessels, ships with grains from regions that were rich and fertile in soil. And the merchants that took the harvested crops and grains to sell at other seaports. In return, the merchants brought back the profits and benefits of such trade to the farmers and the merchants. But the point Solomon is making is the uncertainty of life and the two situations he portrays is this, that life is full of faith and uncertainty. The truth is that no one can control the circumstances because here's what might happen, especially in the ancient world, when they put all of their, their grain, everything that they, they built their lives towards, if they put it on the ship, they're hoping for a return of investment, right? But they very well might not get a, a return of investment for, for weeks, if not months. I mean, that's, that's a risk because a lot of things could happen. The ship that the, the grain is on could, could get wrecked. Uh, pirates could come aboard and, and steal everything. There could be disease and, and crop failure and all kinds of other things that, that might happen. But if and when the ship returned, the faith of the merchants and farmers was rewarded. And the idea Solomon is getting here in, in living a life by faith and the adventures of life is that so often, listen to me, this is, this is key setting up this entire message today. So often we are more concerned with getting than we are with giving. And the principle Solomon is trying to give us in this first picture of life is generosity. Generosity is a key to a successful life, to a life that is well-pleased and lived the way that God wants us to live. Solomon is encouraging us to take risk in our faith and, listen, in our giving. The word cast is a reference to total commitment as opposed to withholding or hoarding to ourselves. We are very good at withholding things, right? We are very good at um, uh, um, uh, stocking up, in a sense, is what I'm trying to say. You know, we do this sometimes. We go to the grocery store and there's a great deal. So what do we do? We stock up and we try to save it. So we put it in the freezer. We put it somewhere that, you know, it's going to, to last for a while. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But Solomon is encouraging open-handed generosity. Stay with me here. He's not encouraging us to just carelessly throw away our money. He's not saying, hey, catch your bread upon the water. Just throw all your money away. You know, just, just buy whatever you want. Some people take that aspect of life. I'm just going to buy whatever I want and do whatever I want. That's foolish. That's not wise. But listen, even if you're generous enough to give, Sometimes we still want to make sure that everything is going to work out the way that we think it should work out. Do the people that we gave to actually deserve it? You ever think that kind of stuff? You know, are they even thankful for what they've been given? You know, I'm, I am a very generous person by nature, and, you know, I think about it with our kids. There's been times where I've given gifts to our kids, not on birthdays or special occasions, just because I wanted to. And we're still working at this with Nate, but there's been many times where, where Nate is, is, you know, he gets a gift and I didn't want that. I don't like that. And my first reaction is, man, bless you, kid. I love you for saying that. No, it's not. Like, how dare you? How dare you be ungrateful? I just spent 
you know, my hard-earned money to buy you this gift that I thought you would enjoy, and you're like, ah, I wanted something else. I wanted all this stuff that I saw. And a lot of times, sadly, here's what happens to me when, when Nate treats me like that. I want nothing to do with gifts anymore. What I mean is, I'm not going to give him anything the rest of his life. (laughs) You want to treat me like that, kid? You're not going to get anything until you graduate, and you're going to be lucky to get anything then. That's how I act sometimes, and honestly, that's how we act sometimes when when we're generous and, well, there's no return. I mean, nobody said thank you. I don't even think these people deserve it. But Solomon adds, listen, he says, after you are generous, after you, in a sense, cast your bread upon the waters, You have to wait and watch for the blessings, and the blessings will come, but they might not happen for many days. And really, this is a beautiful promise. When you give in a true spirit of giving, it will come back to you. Now, listen, this isn't a prosperity gospel message this morning, but I've realized in my life when I've given, it didn't always come back in the way that I thought it should. Well, I've given $100, so I should get $200 back, right? Well, I've given this, so I deserve at least equal, if not greater. That's not how it works. But Solomon is urging us to take risk. Now listen, how often in our lives do we buy things not to keep them, but to just give them away? Wow, Christmas and birthdays and stuff like that. But how often do you just go to the store, I'm just going to buy a bunch of stuff for someone that I don't even know and just generously give it. Some of us might be like that, but sadly some of us aren't because we're more interested in hoarding, right? We're more interested in getting for ourselves. Now listen to this. This is very important. This all ties together this morning. When you give something away, you're risking that you may have just lost more than you gave because there's not always an immediate return, and if there is, it might take some time. But one of the great principles we learn in this verse is this. Getting makes us proud. The more you get, the prouder you become. Hey, look what I've acquired. Look at all my wealth. Look at my car. Look at my truck. Look at my yacht. Look at my house. Look at my whatever, right? But giving makes us humble. The Bible says it is more blessed to receive than to give, right? Oh, some of you know your Bible. That's good. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's something we try to teach our kids, but how often are we that person? You know, we're generous to people that we know, but how often are we just open-handed in our generosity? And that's what Solomon is teaching us here. Look at verse number two, because it continues on. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. So what he's talking about again in the merchant and and sending your grain out on the ships, he's, he's basically saying, hey, send all your stuff on seven or eight ships because what he's saying is, in a sense, is diversify. Diversify your gifts. Diversify your generosity. Here's, here's a simpler way to explain it. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, Right? I think many of us know that truth. We understand what he's saying. But Solomon is basically saying, give to as many as you can and then some be generous. Don't stop with the few close needs around you. Now, in Solomon's day, giving was to the, to the height of seven was, was very generous, but eight was kind of over the top. 
You know, a foolish person puts all their financial security in one place, and any investor would tell you to not just put it in one place, right, Stephanie? To diversify it, to spread it out, because there might be evil, there might be something that happens. But let's, let's get really practical this morning. How often do we put all of our eggs in one basket? Here's what I mean. How often are we more focused on our marriage than we neglect our children? I've seen that. I've seen that uh, as a youth pastor for many years where I'm not saying you shouldn't focus on your marriage, but I've seen parents that were more focused on themselves and really could care less about their kids. Or I've seen people that are more focused on their jobs and really could care less about their family, right? There might even be people, people that struggle with that in here today. You know, it's very easy to sometimes put all of our energy into one place and focus on that. But what happens if it's taken away or fails? It can easily devastate us. Solomon is saying you can't just focus on one thing. You know, life in our culture is about getting. But that's not a biblical perspective, people. When you study God's word, you see that life should be lived not to get, but to give. And you think about what Jesus has done. And we talked about this in our men's Bible study on, on Thursday, and it's amazing how it just flowed together. But the thing that I, I, I think of is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he, he gave, right? He gave what? The greatest gift in the world. He gave his only begotten son. So that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God was very generous in his giving. And the goal of the Christian life is to be like our Savior, to be like Christ. And since Jesus and God were willing to give so much and give of themselves, what are we doing in return? Now listen, here's what Solomon is saying in these first two verses, and it all it, it's going to tie together here this morning. But when you give, you release. And greater satisfaction is found through release. Here's the application here in these verses. Satisfaction is not found in holding on, but in letting go. Satisfaction is not found in holding on, but in letting go. And all, or not all, but much of Solomon's life, he had been trying to hold on and hold on and hold on and get as much as he could. And he realized that that was futile. It was empty. It was worthless. He finally realizes, that, you know what? Life isn't meant to hold on because one day my life is going to end. So what good is it done if I've held on to everything? Life is meant to let go of, let go of things that, that we think are, are very important and give up control. And again, be generous. Now let's continue on because it gets better. Verse number three, if the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves. He uses a lot of great metaphors and principles and applications to help draw the principle that he's trying to give us. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. Now, this verse is so weighty. He's using an illustration of water to help remove petty excuses for not giving. One of the main reasons that we are to give generously is because it is the natural outflow of a full life. You know, clouds in the atmosphere, what happens is, is they absorb water, but they can't just keep water forever. What has to happen eventually with those clouds in the atmosphere? They have to release it, right? They have to let it go. And that's what Solomon is saying. Please listen. Solomon is saying, hey, 
a, a, a life well lived, a life to, of finding true satisfaction and contentment is not holding on, but letting go of what God has given you. Just like a cloud, they store up the water, not to be like, hey, I'm all puffed up with all this water. Look at me. No, the natural outflow of that cloud is to what? Give back the water, right? The natural outflow of a Christian, a child of God, is to give back what God has given us. And look, almost every single person in this room probably thinks they're a generous person. But how generous truly are you? How generous truly are you? If you're more concerned with getting, with acquiring, instead of giving, then you're not that generous of a person. And I can go deep into this, but there's another series coming about that. But you think about even our giving to God and our tithes and our offerings and, and what we're supposed to do in relation to God in the church. There's a lot of people that, you know what? I love God with all my heart. I want to give my, my life to God. But you know what? One of the hardest things people to give to God is their wallet, right? Their money. Because that's, that's no, 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 that, that's mine. I worked for that. It's not yours. It all belongs to God. And again, I'm not going to go into that because that's another series entirely, but the principle in the Bible that we see is that we are supposed to give back the first fruits, what God deserves, what is rightfully his. If we want to give over and above that, that's fine. But so many people don't even apply that principle to their lives. That's my money. I can't afford to give. You know, when things get better, that's when I'll start giving. When things, you know, you know, you know, uh, when, when things, you know, just start working out, when I have more money, that's when I'll be more giving. Sadly, that's never going to happen. <laughs> Honestly, because if you don't start practicing giving no matter what you have, there's a good chance you're probably not going to start later because you're never going to have enough and there's never going to be a perfect day. Uh, Brother Ron, you've, you've done some farming in your life, right? Now, in, in your life, did you always wait for that perfect day to, to plant a crop? No, Why? Because sometimes there's not a perfect day, right? Sometimes the wind is blowing or it's storming. And in order to get the crop to produce, you have to just go out and plant it, right? And that's really the principle that Solomon is giving us in, in verse 3 and verse 4. Look at verse 4. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. If you're waiting on the perfect circumstances, you're going to be waiting a long time. And a lot of people, oh, I'm generous, but I just don't have the money to give right now. I don't have the resources to give. So, you know... If people can give me, that'd be great. How selfish. How selfish we are. And Solomon said, man, the first picture of your life is to give. And here's what he's saying in verses 3 and 4. Get this. This is, this is so good. Give what you've been given. Give what you've been given. As the cloud receives the rain, receives the water, clouds are not supposed to just continually store up and that's it. They are supposed to give back. As the verse continues, the tree that falls, sometimes a tree is going to die. It's just part of life. But a lot of times what we see is a tree falls, and what happens? Other things plant up, right, or, or produce from that tree. And the point is this, in a sense, bloom where you are planted. It doesn't matter if a tree falls north or south. Wherever it falls, that's where it's supposed to be. And again, you often think, well, I'm going to wait until God really just starts, you know, blessing my life. I'm not saying God's not going to bless your life, but that's completely unbiblical. God has, has required us and he's charged us, he's challenged us. And that's what Solomon is doing here. 
He's a man that had everything, all the money that you could imagine in the world, and he said to find true satisfaction as he closes out his summation of it all. To find true satisfaction, you know what you need to do? Be generous. Give. Well, that's foolish. No, it's not. It's wise. Clouds can't keep water. The trees can't live forever. But the important principle that we need to learn is that we can give back. Listen. But so often we fight God's universal laws of nature. Look, don't sit around and wait for ideal circumstances. It's easy to make excuses for not giving, isn't it? Sadly, our churches are full of people in the pews and chairs that have excuses of why they don't give to God. Oh, because I just had this come up. I just had this situation come up, and, and I have to take care of that. But the Bible is pretty clear that God deserves in the first fruit. Everything you make first off the top belongs to God. But sadly, here's what happens. If I have any left, I'll give it over to God, right? I've got to take care of my mortgage. I've got to take care of my electric bill. I've got to take care of my cable bill. I've got to take care of my hobbies. Is there anything wrong to do those things? No, we need to do those things. But what God requires first and foremost is what is rightly his. And Solomon is encouraging generosity. Give what you've been given. Again, it's easy to make excuses but instead of making an excuse for not giving, listen to me. Why not make an impact? Why not start making a difference? Rather than keeping for really no purpose at all, why not give to an eternal purpose? And there's a very important truth that we learn. Listen to this. It is unnatural and impossible for a cloud to retain water without giving it back. It's also unnatural and impossible for you and I to have a meaningful and abundant life that God designed by withholding. That's what Solomon is getting at. It's impossible for a cloud to be the cloud they're supposed to be without giving back what was already given to them. It is impossible to have a thriving Christian life a life that God wants us to have, a life of meaning by withholding. I know there's not going to be too many amens in this message. But listen, here's the application. Satisfaction is not found in our circumstances, but in our commitments. There's always going to be circumstances for why you can't. And Solomon is trying to refute those circumstances. If you're always waiting for the, the wind to be perfect, you're going to be waiting a long time. And when it is, it's probably going to change in a couple minutes. <laughs> if you're always waiting for that, that perfect uh, you know, gift that someone is giving you to start giving to others, you're going to be waiting a long time. Don't wait. Let's continue on. Verse number five. And really, what he's saying is, and I, I like this analogy, is be the cloud, right? Be the cloud. Be, be who God has called you to be. Don't withhold, but, but give back. Look at verse number five. As thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb. Really, he's talking about life within the womb. It's a mysterious thing. And really, this is another verse talking about, really, that life begins at conception. I can go deep on that subject this morning. But, you know, it's a mystery how the fetus grows. It really is. Even in all of our scientific research and studies, it's still mysterious 
how a child can develop. It really is. It blows me away. And the point Solomon is making is that there are certain things in life that you're just not going to understand. Only God can truly fathom and understand because he is the one that has designed them. He is the one that is in charge of them. Just like you can't fully understand how that fetus, that child, uh, can grow bones and develop within the womb. Even so, thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. And the point is this, don't try to spiritualize everything. There are many things that we do not know. How is the human personality, the uniqueness of our humanity, that which distinguishes us from beasts, passed on to an unborn fetus? It's another verse, again, that talks about life at conception, but just because you don't know the work of God, don't put God in a box based on your limited understanding. The secret to satisfaction in life is found in a relationship with the one who made the son, who shaped you in your mother's womb, and the one who has the answers to all of the applications of life. God holds the answers to all. God is the solution to all. And satisfaction is not found apart from him. Again, here's what Solomon is doing in these verses. Listen, we're going to dive a little deeper into this tonight. He's dismantling all of our excuses for not giving. These, point, these verses point back to a lack of understanding of the power of God. We don't know how God produces life. We don't know how he uses gifts, but he does. And he uses them in remarkable ways. Now look at verse number six. We'll close with this this morning. In the morning sow thy seed. In the evening withhold not thine hand. For thou knowest not whether thou shalt prosper. Either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Here's what he's saying in verse number six. Life is rewarding, so keep on giving. Don't just do it in the morning, do it in the afternoon, do it in the evening. Life is an adventure of faith. Don't try to figure out God. Don't try to figure out God's economy because God's economy does not make sense. You know, I've talked to many people about this. You know, I, I give what God uh, rightly deserves, and I try to give more. I try to give extra. And I, a lot of times when I get my statement of what, what I gave to the church, when I gave to God at the end of the year, and I look at it, and it astounds me because I'm like, how did I make it? How did I make it this past year? Because in my mind, in my budget, I needed that money. But yet, God always takes care of his own. God always rewards obedience. He always rewards faith. Even though I didn't necessarily get back the money that I gave away, God blessed me in a lot of other ways. And again, God's economy does not make sense. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Give now, give later, but keep giving. Generosity should be a sustained value in your life. Stop waiting, stop reasoning, stop fearing, stop excusing, stop rationalizing, and start giving. You know, this conversation, or this, these verses are kind of like a conversation with a wise parent or grandparent. And that's exactly what Solomon is, is. He's that wise parent, grandparent that has been through life, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I lived that life. It's not going to produce anything. You want to have meaning in your life? Here's the very first thing you should do. Be generous. Live by faith. This is because God is a good father, and like every good father, he knows where his kids tend to get in trouble. 
in the pictures of life, understand that life is an adventure. We're to live it by faith. We're to take risk. We're to be generous and not stingy. We're not to hold back what we've been given. The goal of life shouldn't be to become a fat cloud. (laughs) The goal in life should be to give what you've been given. And I close with that core truth again. It is unnatural and impossible for a cloud to retain water without giving it back. Just as it's unnatural and impossible for you to have a meaningful life that God designed by withholding. And this is so much more than just our resources. Well, this pastor is just talking about money. No. If you're saved today, if you're a child of God, God has given you a great gift, right? The gift of his son, the gift of salvation. Here's what many Christians do. They might give of their offerings. They might give of their money, their resources, but they don't give the greatest gift that was given to them. They don't share the good news of the gospel with other people. Well, I don't know what to say. Why don't you just share simply what God has done in your life? That's a way that we withhold. That's a way that we don't take risks, but, but I'm afraid of what this person might say to me. Look, it's hard to be a truly committed follower of Christ if we're not willing to follow him in all areas of life. It's like Hudson Taylor once said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Look, don't live your life to be a fat cloud, to, to gain, to store up, to, hey, look at me, because sadly, as Solomon has already told us, one day, I'm not trying to be crass, but one day you're going to die. And as you die, it's going to be left behind. And we've already hit on this in chapter 5 and 6, I think it was. You know, even giving it to your kids or grandkids or whatever, you know, that's fine. But sadly, a lot of times they waste it. So you can work your life for all kinds of stuff and and gain and gain and gain and really never be satisfied because you never have enough. You ask those that are are millionaires that aren't Christians and and they're trying to make more millions. (laughs) They're trying to become a billionaire. They're trying to become a trillionaire because what they have is not enough. They're more interested in in withholding. But God says, and Solomon says, the wisest man to ever have lived, if you want to find meaning in life, learn to be generous with what God has given you. It's unnatural, impossible for a cloud to keep, to retain without giving back. And just like it's unnatural for you, a child of God, To be the child that you are supposed to be by withholding what God has given you.